Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are not currently meeting for in-person services, but we would love to have you join us for our live stream at hopechapel.org forward slash live. We stream every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, Open your Bibles to Philippians 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen? Uh, Mike and I started seminary at the same time. Is that right? Same time? And we also started Hebrew at the same time. And Mike had a different class than me, and I, I had a really, really easy teacher... And Mike had the exact opposite, an extremely difficult teacher. It was a fun semester for me. It's good. Um, The thing is, my teacher wasn't great at teaching Hebrew. He was a great man, but by the time I got him, he was not such a great teacher. Here's what he did, though. He would have all of these weird asides where he would talk about his life and give his testimony, and, and every single story he told was extremely rich in terms of what it told me about how God had impacted and shaped his life. And so when I look back on that class, I think, man, every story that guy told was about the gospel. I don't remember Hebrew, but I remember this guy continually talked to us about what God accomplished through Jesus at the cross. And I I viewed this section of Philippians as much like that. Paul is talking about a number of different things. He's going to uh, address people who are opposing His teaching, he's going to talk about his own testimony, but ultimately he's going to give us one of the best pictures of the good news of the gospel in the entire New Testament. In 11 verses, he achieves so much. You may know that the Philippian church was one that Paul was personally invested in. He had pastored them, he cared for them, he was there when the church first first came into existence. He preached the gospel and people came to faith. And we know so far, he's been talking about all kinds of different things, but the last chapter has dealt with the example of Christ, 
the example of Timothy and the example of Epaphroditus. And then he begins this section right here with these words, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And um, it, really, it really does look like he's about to end the letter. But um, if you look at Philippians, he's only halfway through. It's like when a pastor says, I want to end with this. And uh, he goes into his, like, closing conclusion tone. And you're like, all right, he's about to wrap up. And you're thinking about where you're going to go to lunch today and stuff like that. Um, Pay attention at the end, uh, because Paul goes on to quite a bit more and extremely, extremely rich gospel exposition. These 11 verses are magnificent. They're multifaceted. And he says to them, listen, it's easy for me to write this. And it's, it's a safeguard. It's safe for you, for me to write these things to you. He wants to make them safe. He wants to give them a holy confidence in what it is that they believe. And we don't know if Paul, as he's writing, hears a report about the church that he needs to address so he continues, or if as he's writing, he remembers he's got a few more things to say. We do know that God sovereignly ordained that Paul would write these 11 verses for the Philippians and Hope Chapel also for us. We're going to receive the words of God through the writing of Paul now. And as he talks to the Philippians, he gives them three things that they should be doing, not to be saved, but because they're saved. They should resist error, should renounce self, and they should receive Christ. And these things sound like the sort of thing that you do when you first become a Christian, but they're the things you are always doing all the way to the very end of your life, resisting error, renouncing self, and receiving Christ. So I want you to go back with me to verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul begins with a really stark, intense warning. He he, uh, says, beware or watch out three times. He uses three terms, dogs, evildoers, and, and mutilators, or those who mutilate the flesh. He uses really, really extreme, aggressive language. And it's just like, remember, Paul addresses all kinds of things in various churches. He deals with grievous sin. He deals with with really intense persecution. He deals with division that shouldn't be in the various churches that he's writing to. But here, he uses language that is more drastic than almost anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's because he's dealing with this group that we often call the Judaizers. You may not know who they are. It's okay, I'm going to explain them in a moment here. But what you need to know is like these guys are Paul's nemeses. Nemeses? Is that the plural? Nemeses. He's really frustrated about what they're doing. There's no group that gets him more frustrated and angry and ready to deal with a threat than this group. And just to illustrate this problem, uh, here's uh, some openings in letters where Paul is not addressing the issue of the Judaizers. So you, you can go to 1 Thessalonians, and here's how he begins his letter. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. What a rich, welcoming, uh, thankful, loving way to open a letter. In Colossians, we, thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. We can go to um, 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with really, really ugly sin in the church, and he still says to them, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, he writes a letter to the Galatians that is dealing primarily with the issue of the Judaizers, and this is how he starts. I'm astonished <laughs> that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's like, it's time to get to business, Galatians. No time for Thanksgiving. <laughs> He's frustrated with them. He's very, very frustrated with them. And here's why. The Judaizers were a group of self-styled Christian teachers. They claimed to be Christians. And they said, yes, you must believe in the Jewish Messiah to be saved. You need to believe in his death and his resurrection. Also, you need to abide in Jewish law. For the men, that means you must be circumcised and you must follow the entire Mosaic law. Their contention was this. If you're a Gentile, if you're not Jewish, if you're from Philippi, or you're from, from Galatia, or you're from some other place, and you want to serve and trust a Jewish Messiah, then you need to abide also by Jewish law. And their teaching was one that led a lot of people astray. It was one that said, yes, you must trust Jesus. Also, you have to do something else in order to be saved. It was Jesus plus something. Paul calls it a different gospel. He says, when you add to the saving work of Jesus Christ at the cross, achieved there through his death, when you add to it, you're robbing God of his glory, and you're subverting the power of the gospel itself. You can't say Jesus plus something else. That's not what the gospel is. We're saved by grace through faith. Is that right? You guys still with me? Okay, so Paul uses really, really aggressive terms. And remember, he's talking to a group who view themselves as faithful Jews and Christians. He calls them dogs. He says, beware the dogs. Dogs was a term that Jews used for Gentiles, but now Paul is using it for a group of Jewish believers or so-called believers who are saying that you also have to abide by Jewish law. He calls them the evildoers. They're saying to the, the Judaizers, they're saying to the Christians at Philippi and elsewhere that you need to engage in works of the law or works of righteousness in order to be saved. And Paul's saying, ah, oh, they think that, but they're the ones who are actually doing works of evil. He calls them the mutilators of the flesh, which is a play on the word circumcision. He's saying they're telling you that you need to be circumcised. However, when they're telling you you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, they are nothing but mutilators of the flesh. Paul is saying... When you add something to the gospel message, when you say you must also do these things in order to be saved, when you think it's God's effort at the cross plus some of your effort, you're robbing God of his glory. You're striking at the very heart of what the gospel has to say. It's really serious. I want you to contrast that with what Paul says in other places. When Paul deals with very serious sin, he addresses it directly but his language is a little bit different than it is here. Here he's saying, you cannot abide this belief at all. You cannot add to the message of the gospel. And he gives them a new definition. He says this in, in verse 3. He says, 
Beware the dogs, beware the evildoers, beware the mutilators of the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying that the problem with the Judaizers' view is the object that they put their trust in. Is the object that they put their trust in. He's saying these guys are telling you that in a certain sense, you can do things in order to be acceptable and made right with God beyond what Jesus has already done at the cross. And Paul adds, that's wrong. Jesus' work at the cross is finished. It's complete. And we, them and us, cannot add to it. And what's, I think, tricky about this is um, Paul doesn't think that circumcision by itself is wrong. In fact, he has one of his close associates later be circumcised. I don't think Paul thinks that abiding by certain Jewish laws as a matter of cultural expression is wrong. I don't think he's saying these things in and of themselves are intrinsically evil. He's not saying the presence of these things in your lives is evil. He's saying the power they have in your lives is evil. Saying circumcision isn't a big deal until you think it saves you. Circumcision is not a problem until you think that it's the the way that you are saved. And this is, this is important because those sorts of things are harder to see. It's harder to see good things in our lives become sources of comfort such that we might think that they can save us. If people go and live flagrant lives of sin, it's very obvious and very visible. But if we slowly come to believe that good things in our lives are the source of our salvation if we slowly come to believe that our own moral abilities are the source of our salvation, that's less visible, and it's very dangerous. We are saved by Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing. No less or more than the work of Jesus at the cross. I want to try and give you an illustration. Um, anybody ever been in a submarine? Amazing. Okay, Just Only at Disneyland for me. I've never been in a real submarine. I think they are pretty terrifying. I think I'd rather be on a space station than a submarine, if I'm being honest. Uh, and you know, you have this big submarine that's hundreds of feet down in the water, and it's got really finely engineered exterior, and it's the submarine that's keeping the people inside the submarine safe, right? It's the really, really strong submarine that's keeping the people inside safe. And you could imagine someone in that submarine uh, is a little concerned about the submarine. They know that it's what's keeping them safe, but just to be careful, they're going to put on goggles and a snorkel. Do you guys see what I'm saying? So they wear the goggles and the snorkel just, just like to just make sure they're safe, right? And that would be strange and disconcerting um, that they think that something they could buy at Walmart would be safer for them than a submarine. But it's not a big deal. It's just, a, just snorkels and goggles, right? And it would be like a little bit weirder if slowly their trust in what kept them safe shifted away from the submarine toward the goggles and snorkel. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And it would be even more dangerous if they felt so safe because of the snorkel and goggles that they left the safety of the submarine and they believed that the, the goggles and the snorkel could save them. Do you understand what I'm saying? You with me? 
One of the reasons why Paul is so concerned is that his, his fear for the souls of these Philippians is that their sure and holy confidence as Jesus and the one who has already done the work to save them might be undermined by something else that assuredly cannot save them, is unable to save them. And I know, I know we look at the Philippians and we look at the debate over circumcision in, in the early church and we think, really? That's, that's what you're concerned about? That seems like an odd thing to have a big fight over. But the thing is, the things that we today are most likely to substitute as objects of trust instead of Jesus are going to be the things that are least visible to us. Cultures will naturally turn away from God. People will naturally put their trust in other things, both individually and corporately. Like, ask this question of yourself. What is the thing that you think keeps you safe, that you think somehow earns you salvation or safety and security other than Jesus? Has your trust shifted away, or has it never really been placed in Jesus? It could be a million different things. So careers, or politics, or money, or physical health, or family life. What is it that you think keeps you safe? Paul's not done. He wants them to resist error, but he's going to continue. He's going to continue with a testimony. He's going to teach them that they should renounce the self. Uh, read this in, in verses 4 through 8. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I know when I get asked a question like, what are you trusting in besides Jesus? I might say, I'm not really sure what it is, but I know for that guy it's money. <laughs> I think our tendency is to be able to see in other people where their trust has drifted away from Jesus towards something else. But Paul doesn't even permit himself to escape the cutting edge of gospel truth. He sees these other people teaching that you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to abide in works of the law. You need to be circumcised and obey Mosaic law. And he says, listen, let me show you my own resume. Let me employ my own testimony to what you're saying. So he gives them like his, his resume. He says, here's what it means, what it looks like to be a faithful Jew. How many of you guys have ever written your own resume before? It's awful, right? You write all the good things you've done. Paul offers this resume that's incorporating some of the things that were his by birthright and some things that he did himself. I want to just work through real quick because it's, it's a very impressive list of achievements and identity markers that would have been very important to the very people that Paul is opposing. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. 
means he's a son of the covenant. He wasn't circumcised as an adult, as a proselyte who came in. He wasn't circumcised in his 13th year like an Ishmaelite might be. He was circumcised on the right day because he was born into the right family. He says, I'm of Israel, a descendant of Jacob who became Israel, who had 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Even more, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, who were faithful to David during the civil wars. The, the region that they're from, that they have, is where Jerusalem sits and the temple sits. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. At the time, Greek culture was invading the Jewish world. And people were very concerned about Jews who came, like, slowly came to believe and trust in and, and like Greek ideas. And Paul's saying, not me. I wasn't tempted away from the traditions of our forefathers by Greek culture. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he begins to talk about things that, that he did. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, when we read the New Testament, the bad guys are typically who? No, it's us, guys. It's us. <laughs> We're the bad guys in reading the Testament, but also the Pharisees. When we read the Pharisees in the New Testament and we see the sorts of things that we say, we're kind of like, oh, are they the good guys or the bad guys? But to many Jews at the time, they would have been the good guys, faithful Jews, abiding by the law, caring about the traditions. They were well-liked. Paul's saying, I studied with the Pharisees. He's like the equivalent of Harvard Law at the time. I'm strict. I know what I'm talking about. I'm intellectually superior to many other people who study the law also. He said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We know the story of Paul. You guys know the story of Paul? Paul begins in the book of Acts not as the good guy of the story. We're first introduced to him when Stephen is being martyred and people are putting their coats at the feet of Paul. He's excited about dealing with this new problem. He's like, there are Jews now who believe that this Jewish carpenter was put to death and was raised back to life, and now they worship him as God and trust in him as Messiah. I'm going to deal with that, is what Paul says. So he works hard to deal with it. He doesn't suffer blasphemers. He says, as to uh, righteousness by the law or in the law, blameless. Blameless. See, what he's not saying is that he's sinless. He's saying, I abided by the law. I did it all right. If I sinned, I offered the appropriate sacrifice. I celebrated the right festivals. I did the right things, ate the right things, wore the right things, associated with the right people. I was educated at the right school. You could not have a better pedigree than me. So there's some irony here because he's dealing with this group who's saying, you need to be Jewish. You need to abide by Jewish law. If you want to trust in a Jewish Messiah, you need to abide by Jewish law. You have to be saved not just by Jesus, but also by certain things that you do. And Paul's saying, listen, I did all of those things. I did them well. I did them arguably better than you could ever do them. But I couldn't be saved by them. If I could have been saved by them, I would have been, but I couldn't. These works of the laws were not sufficient to save me. And the thing is, these assets, these good things about Paul, they become liabilities the greater trust that he has in them. He uses gain and loss language. He uses gain and loss language. He uses kind of accounting language. He says, all these things that I just listed to you that many people would, be, think, would think are really, really, really good things, they became liabilities the more that I trusted in them, they became more dangerous the more that I trusted in them. 
What I want to say about us today is as we put our trust in other things, they become more dangerous because they believe, we believe that they can, in one way or another, save us. I know maybe not explicitly in our minds, but it is so easy, I know in my own heart, to trust in something else. What makes you angriest when it's challenged, most afraid when it's threatened, what gives you the greatest hope when you imagine it? What occupies your thoughts? What is the sort of thing that when you don't have it for a little while, it preoccupies you? I know for me, like, it's like the health of my family, right? If I think my family's unwell in some way, I can feel it in my heart so much that I become concerned that I've become to trust in my family instead of Jesus. But is my family a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. Good things only become bad things when they become ultimate things. That's why it's dangerous. Paul's saying it is dangerous to trust things too much such that they become a substitute for the salvation offered only in Jesus Christ. He's saying in Christ alone, in Christ alone, in nothing else can you find hope or salvation or security or safety. So what happens to Paul? We know he's on the road to Damascus. He's getting ready to deal with more Christians. And who does he encounter? Who who does he encounter? Jesus. Jesus. He says this in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Uh, Paul says, I saw something better. I saw something better. I took my son to the zoo whenever we were allowed to do that, <laughs> like a year ago. Um, you guys ever been to the zoo? Yeah. And so, like, you know how the zoo is. I go to the zoo, and, and we go to see animals. And I don't really have any way of verifying that they actually have any animals. We just look at exhibits that are empty. So i got to tell my son over and over again, all oh, the animals are sleeping or something. And then we get to the tiger exhibit, and the tiger is putting on a show. It's unreal. He's jumping around, splashing water. It was the best zoo experience I've ever had in my life. And I say to my son, man, like, can you believe this? And he's like, I know. And I look down, and he's staring at a beetle that's on, like, the, the railing of the fence. He's just like. There's an amazing tiger jumping around, doing amazing tiger things, right? And he's like, look at that beetle. <laughs> Not even an interesting beetle, like one that I could find in my backyard. I'm like, son, look at the tiger. <laughs> look up. I don't think I need to belabor the point. I'm, I'm just saying, like, the, the things that we put our trust in that seem so good to us, that seem so safe to us, that seem like they give us security, that enrapture our hearts, that captivate us, are nothing, nothing compared to Jesus. Paul encounters Jesus. That's what happens. He meets Jesus 
on the road to Damascus, he discovers something greater. And then all of these things that I'm sure he was proud of, that defined him, that he thought earned him rightness before God, suddenly he calls them rubbish. He uses this word, scubula. There's some debate over how polite or impolite this word is. The point is this. He's saying in terms of being made right with God, These things are no longer fit to even be thrown to the dogs. They are refuge in and of themselves, no, but as means by which I can be made right with God, means for salvation. There's this old hymn, um, and you guys might know it, uh, my hope rests on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You guys heard that hymn? Here's why I like that hymn. It says, I trust Jesus, right? That's all I have. And then it says, even sweet frames, I dare not trust in those. I think, for me and for you, the predominant danger in our lives is not mostly going to be scandalous sin. For some of us, it it might be. I think the danger is we see something that looks sweet, that looks secure, that looks safe, that it is in and of itself a good thing, and we trust that instead of Jesus. I think that's the way I'm most likely to struggle. A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. My family or finances or career, achievement, some sort of success, physical health, social acceptance, my appearance, whatever can become something that I trust too much. And when I do, it becomes dangerous. Paul says, resist error and and renounce self and all the things that you've accumulated for yourself. Then lastly, receive Christ. He says this in verses 9 through 11. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, found in Jesus. If you are new, if you don't know much about Christianity, if you happen to wonder in here today or were invited I want you to understand something very important about Christianity. Christianity is not about moral change first. It's not about being a good person first. I hear people describe Christianity all the time. Oh, yeah, it's about being a good person, learning to be like Jesus, you know, and then slowly you accumulate accumulate enough good works to get to heaven. That is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about trusting in someone who was good in your place. Christianity is first and foremost not about the quality of your faith, the age or maturity of your faith. It is about the object of your faith. What do you trust in? This is why Paul is so frustrated. This is why he's so frustrated. He's saying someone came along and told you to trust in something added on to Jesus, and I want you to know in Christ alone, only in Jesus can you find salvation. You cannot make yourself right before God through any earthly means, only through the work 
of Jesus. And then Paul begins to talk about what we receive when we receive Christ. And he gets really theological. He talks about really the whole spectrum, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we're going to go back through those real quick. Justification in verse 9. He says, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on what? Faith. Paul uses a word here. He's referring to the idea of being made right before God. He's saying some people have come to believe that obeying the works of Jewish law is a means by which you can be made right with God. And in fact, even if you believe in Jesus, you need to do these things also. He's saying, I'm telling you, no, 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 no. The only righteousness that I can have is the one that comes from God through faith. That's it. There's no other way to be made right with God. There are only, Pope Chapel, there are only two religions in the world. There's the religion of human effort and the religion of divine effort. Every other religion, as far as I know, will say to you, here is how to make it to heaven. And Christianity says, here is who has made it possible for you to get to heaven. It's saying, trust in Jesus who did it in your place. Trust in the divine effort. Trust in what Jesus did at the cross. Paul is saying, I know I was made right. I was justified. I was made righteous through the work of Jesus. A faith, a faith in God, not my own abilities. We can see him say things like this other places. In 2 Corinthians, we say, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or this famous passage in Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you're new or if you're not new, and somehow this has escaped you, you may only be saved through faith in Jesus, through nothing else. That because of our sin, the wrath of God is meant to be poured out on us. But God, seeking to be just and the justifier of the one who calls on Jesus, who has faith in Jesus, made a way for us to be saved through the work of Jesus so that he takes our punishment and we can be saved if we call on his name. That's what Paul is protecting when he's dealing with the Judaizers. He's saying they're robbing God of his work. They're robbing God of his glory. They're saying to you, you can be saved some other way. There are a million ways that our culture says that we can be saved. There's only one actual way. He moves on to sanctification. The, the, uh, the fact that as, as we grow in knowledge of God, we become more like Jesus. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
Um, when I was 17, I was in a youth group, uh, and I had a youth leader, and I told the youth leader, I don't really need his help anymore. I knew all the Christian answers. Oh, man, I'm just embarrassed to even say it. 17-year-old me. Paul has been a believer now for decades. He's written letters to churches. He's suffered on behalf of the name of Jesus. He's proclaimed the gospel. And he still says, I want to know him. He still says, I want to know him. Do you want to know Jesus? That was not convincing. Do you want to know Jesus? I was 17 and I was like, yeah, I've got it all figured out. (laughs) I want to be more like Paul. I want to know Jesus. I want to know him more. I could not in this lifetime exhaust the delights and joys of knowing Jesus more. Certainly not at 17 and not at 117. How do we know him more? Paul says, um, knowing the power of his resurrection. It's important to point out that the very power that raised Jesus, that gave you a new heart, is the same power that's going to see you all the way to the end. The resurrection power of Jesus is the same one that continues to reform you, to restore you, to grow you, to mature you. We can read this in in Romans 6. Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ... Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul also says, and I want to be conformed to his sufferings and be like him in his death. One of the ways of knowing Jesus is this. This is not um, a weird obsession with with trying to find suffering. Don't leave today and try and suffer. (laughs) Paul is saying, what this this is, is it's, it's the calm assurance and sublime joy of knowing that when you suffer, when you suffer, you come to know Jesus more and you become more like him in whatever form it takes. Reminds me of the early apostles. Um, they're preaching the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, and they get, they get arrested and beat up. Never been beat up for talking about Jesus. And this is what they say. This is what happens. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy, worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Paul talks about being made right with God. He talks about becoming more holy, so justification and sanctification. And lastly, he talks about glorification, the very end horizon, the end that God is going to bring him to. And some of your Bibles might say a word here like somehow. And in some of the English renderings, translations, it makes it sound like Paul's not sure. He's like, I really hope that I've risked it correctly. I hope, I hope that at the end I attain the resurrection. Uh, that's not really the way this is to be taken. It really is to be taken in this sense. Paul says, 
Whatever happens, whether I die tomorrow or in 30 years, whatever sufferings I experience along the way, whether Jesus returns before I die, whatever happens, I'm looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. He's saying, always, always for the rest of my life, Christ alone, always. Through wealth or poverty, through sickness and health, when things are going the way we want or when they're not going the way that we want. No matter how much suffering we do or do not experience, always in Christ alone. Paul's saying, this is the only thing I'm going to have confidence in. I'm not going to boast in the flesh. I'm going to boast in the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's going to be the foundation for everything he does. Church, this is a glorious truth for us. Nobody here knows what the rest of their life is going to be like. Nobody. You know what you can know? You can know that in Christ, you are safe. And you have a glorious future in which you will be with him. Amen? I want to end with this. I promise. There are these uh, lyrics to a song we sang that have been in my mind this week. I've been reflecting on a lot. I just want to read them to you. Uh, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. I just want to, I want to point out the source of security for everything that's already happened to you, for what's happening to you now, for the future that you do not know uh, yet. Uh, in, in Christ alone, you can find safety. Amen. If you have it already, you can trust in it. And if you don't, if you don't, call on the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the great work that you, that you achieved, the victory you had through the death of your son at the cross, through the empty tomb, the resurrection. We thank you for all the ways that you continue to bless us even now. Thank you that we are back together. I pray that you keep us safe, that you increase our numbers. I pray that we be a church that has a holy confidence in you. We pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.